Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And the Bloomington Health Foundation, this September hosting the 20th running of Hoosiers Outrun Cancer, a 5K run-slash-walk supporting those in the community facing a cancer diagnosis. Registration and more at HoosiersOutRunCancer.org. From the Milton Metz studio in the Radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg from WFIU, WTIU News. Today we're talking about the future of health care in uh, the nation and in the state. There's been a lot of talk among presidential candidates as we gear up for the 2020 election about how to improve health care. According to the U.S. Census, 8%, 8.8% of Americans did not have health coverage during 2017. Private insurance is the dominant form of coverage, and there is some government coverage as well. Since 2010, 113 hospitals in rural areas have closed their doors. So what is the future of health care in the U.S., and how could it be improved? And we have three guests with us in the studio. Um, Dr. Malaz Bustani is from the Center for Health Innovation and Implementation. He's the science director. Center is with the Indiana University Medical School. Also, Dr. Ed Wiesbart is the head of physicians for a national health program in Missouri. Um, he is an economist specializing in health insurance. And Dr. Kosali Simon is uh, Dr. Kosali Simon is the O'Neill uh, School of Public Environmental Affairs professor, Journal of Health Economics co-chair. Is that correct? Okay, and I think I got your uh, title wrong, right, Ed? Yeah, correct. I am, I am not an economist. No, I don't even balance my checkbook at home. Right. <laughs> I'm a family physician, right. and I chair the Missouri chapter of Physicians for I, a National Health I, Program. Yes, I apologize for, for that mistake uh, starting the program. So <laughs> if uh, we'll try to be totally accurate from here on out. If you uh, want to join us on the program today, you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, or you can join us on the air by calling in at 812-855-0811, or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Well, part of my interest in the show is that you know we're starting to see all these uh, candidates come out with their ideas for health care and health policy, and with the Democratic um, Debates. We've seen people stand up and talk about whether they would give up their private insurance for a national health care plan, some sort of Medicare for all. And I, I think I'd like to start by just trying to get, but get down to some definitions. You know, what, uh, what does Medicare for all mean? And, and Dr. Is Weisbart? Yes. Dr. Weisbart, Medicare for all, what's, what's that mean for people and what would you favor? Well, it's a pretty simple concept and it means exactly what it says. It says – Give Medicare to everybody in the country. Take Medicare as we have it today. Improve a handful of things that we all recognize are limitations in the way it was set up. So um, make sure that we get rid of the financial barriers to health care that are in Medicare. Get rid of the copays. Get rid of the deductibles. And expand the benefits so that it includes dentistry and eyeglasses and hearing aids. So improve Medicare and then give that actual Medicare from the federal tax dollars, give that to everybody um, in the country and get rid of any of the insurance company intermediaries. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Bustani, is that a good idea? Um, I don't think so. Um, so um, the, the whole issue, there's two problems that we have to fix. That solution might fix one problem, but it might lead to unintended consequences. So there is an affordability problem and there's a quality problem. And, and they need, we need different solutions for both of them. Um, so the affordability, obviously, there's a lot of folks who have uh, uh, um, limited mean to afford this almost now back again to double-digit growth in our expense. Um, and that's, that's a problem that we have to, to solve. But there's the other problem that I really don't want my geri geriatric patient to come over the healthcare system in the first place. So maybe you, do, you should not give them that much power because they get harmed in the current healthcare system. Um, only 
less than 50% of the current care is based on evidence. One out of four people get harmed. They are not providing a, a great uh, personalized care, um, and, um, and, and, and there is not much value, and it's getting more and more and more expensive uh, piece. So I, for my mind, I think we should look at different solutions and make sure one solution for one problem doesn't have an unintended consequences for the solution to uh, another problem. So maybe by get rid of, of the mi- intermediary people, like what you suggest, is technically maybe potentially giving the entire power to the consumer and give it, and convert them to actually a consumer and give them health saving account and trust them that they will care about their um, their health more than a bureaucrat in, 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 in D.C. or potentially even a doctor uh, right now who doesn't even have a time uh, to, to spend five minutes with you and get to know you more. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Kosley-Simon is a, uh, an expert in health policy. So how, does, how do the economics of these things play out? And are there you know, different layers to, to this issue? When I when I think about what is at the heart of this of the 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 interest in Medicare for all, to me, it says, even though there have been these hard won battles of the Affordable Care Act, it's not that those those actions have uh, have made healthcare what what America wants it to be. So, in terms of both quality and affordability. The affordability part is very much on everybody's mind right now and thinking even when you have insurance, you face out-of-pocket costs and many people still without insurance. So the idea behind what, what I see is, is the, the reason why we're seeing all these proposals and interest is that we're thinking about how can we get to a, to a point where we're not facing these high costs and concerns about our access to health care. There are lots of assumptions and uncertainties about projections we could make about any one solution. Each solution is going to have, I hate to you know, be the economist saying that there's the costs and the benefits on each side, but there's going to be the, the, the side that's, the, the, to the extent we can make all the cost barriers go away, we're going to be concerned about the expensiveness of the entire process and therefore how the financing of it is going to work. So there are lots of things that I, I see as, as, as we can make projections, but, but uh, we're not really sure, and the details are going to be very difficult for us to all politically decide on. Mm-hmm. In, in the political debate so far, I mean, at least the, the couple of early, early season debates that I watched, uh, they're Candidates like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren that say we need Medicare for all, and I would give away my or give up my my health care insurance, my my private doctor, my private coverage. Um, so, Dr. Weisbart, how realistic is it to think that we could get this turned around? I mean, how long would it take to change the system to something that would be what you where you we think we should go, which is you know a Medicare system for all Americans? Well, the, the pragmatics of how you would make it happen are actually pretty straightforward. Um, in 1965, when Medicare itself was passed into law, it was implemented within less than a year, and the highest-risk patients in our country, the seniors, within a year all had this new product. Um, the bills that are in Congress, one in the House and one in the Senate, uh, talk about either a two- or a four-year transition period where you gradually phase it in. Um, so that part's um, easy. Or is spelled out. I wouldn't call it easy, um, but to think about to think about it, we currently struggle with losing a lot of our health care constantly. Something on the order of twenty to thirty million Americans are fired every year. Another twenty or thirty million million Americans quit their jobs every year. So, for decades, roughly sixty million Americans have changed jobs, and with that, of course, the risk of changing insurance. So, we're constantly changing our insurance. Under the proposal that we're talking about, actually, this would be a way to ensure that virtually every doctor and hospital was in the same system, in your network. So you you said giving up your doctor, and that's the exact opposite of what would happen under this. Under this, you could change jobs, lose your job, start a new job, and... And that would be unrelated to where you go for your health care. Why, why should your employer in your job situation have any role on, on who you go to for health care? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's another one of the 
issues, and, and we'll see. There's always a lot of rhetoric in a, a political campaign, so we'll see people talking about what this new system would do when it actually might not do that, right? So if you have questions or comments for us today, I'd like for you to uh, please go to the phones. Give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also join us. Uh, at, you can find us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Dr. Bustani, um, from a standpoint of, uh, you know, you're, you're a physician and you have a lot of patients and you want to make sure that they have the best health care. And, you know, you've said before that there may be some combination of things might work. So, you know, again, can you talk a little bit more about the the what would that blend be for you? Sure. So I think um, I think United States um, intellectual capital, it's a great opportunity to start thinking outside the box of how can we come up with an innovative um, uh, solution that give us both, give us the affordability and the security and not bankrupt uh, a lot of our family, but in the same time uh, uh, give us a very uh, – powerful um, uh, engagement of our clinicians and our physician in their own choice. So it become what we call it in design thinking, co-development. All right. So there's a lot of um, uh, pro, you know, pros we can learn from, from empowering uh, a patient or empowering a consumer and making the right choice uh, and, and use them to put power and, and influence on, on, the, on the healthcare delivery system to provide uh, values, giving all the new data, data science and all the information we have available. If Facebook can know a lot about you, uh, you know, and even actually, you know, with Cambridge Analytic and other potentially uh, nudge you um, to, 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 to think differently, why we don't have that capability of creating personalized uh, care for everybody. Uh, and for me as a geriatrician, that's one of the big problems for us that I get scared of from these centralized, uh, locally insensitive potential solution is I end up taking what we call it an average solution, a solution for an average person applied for somebody very far away from, from, uh, from, from the average. And for me as a geriatric, that happened. Hypertension, diabetes control was built on people who are in their 50s. And when I see them in their 80s, they, they don't have an economic, they don't have a normal distribution. <laughs> they are very, very unique. Um, and, we need, and they know their body different than them. And they live in a, in a neighborhood that might be very unique. So maybe empowering the neighborhood, empowering the local place, empowering the patient and family, and maybe they can help put a pressure on, you know, providing affordable, high-quality, personalized, and a great experience for everybody involved. So a lot of your patients, I assume, are on Medicare, right? Mm -hmm. So how, how successful do you think are Let me do, So they have Medicare. Eight out of ten people with dementia who are Medicare are not recognized by the current system. Almost 22% of them are taking bad adverse cognitive med uh, adverse medicine for their cognition uh, that potentially increase their risk for developing delirium. When they come over to the hospital for them, almost 23% of them have hospital-acquired complications, um, and and their caregiver um, is is the one the family member who's trying to take care of Medicare cannot even take care of them, even though they are the main uh, provider. So I see. The, the quality um, uh, opportunity for improvement and enhancement in, in, in Medicare, which that's technically what you guys are suggesting. I see it, and there's a huge gap between what my patient wants uh, and what, uh, what they are getting currently for Medicare. Now, there's been changes in the past four or five years that's been really create alignment. This movement from um, uh, volume-based care into value-based and define this value and personalize it uh, has been very uh, uh, impactful and helpful a little bit. But we have a lot, a lot uh, to uh, shrink that uh, quality. Dr. Weisbart, you look like you were maybe wanted to respond. Sure, thanks. Yeah. Um, I you know anybody who tries to argue that we have the the, the best um, 
that we, we that we deliver the best opportunities of care everywhere, every time today. Well, that's ridiculous, of course. And I think what you're pointing out is is a really exciting area where we can improve um, health in the country. We we of course need to improve um, the way healthcare is delivered in in every facet of it. But what I'm talking about is um, that people have to be able to afford to get the care. I saw in clinic two weeks ago. I saw someone with a blood pressure of 200 over 120 who stopped taking her blood pressure pills because she can't afford them. Last week, I saw, I'm not making this up, I saw somebody last week with end-stage uh, emphysema who didn't come in with her oxygen. And I asked her, where's your, and she was huffing and puffing sitting in the chair. And I said, where's your oxygen? And she said, in the United States of America, she said, I can't afford oxygen. So we live in a country where people with emphysema can't afford Oxygen, And sure, I think there's all kinds of things we can do to drastically improve the decision-making that all of us physicians apply at the point of care, that we can do a lot better at making sure we don't prescribe things that are really the wrong things. There's a lot of opportunity to greatly improve the delivery of care. Um, but we have to deal with this issue. And if you look at it, um, we know that American life expectancies um, are among the worst in the modern world, that we live two or three years shorter than most other than any other uh, modern nation. But what often isn't looked at is if you look at what happens when we turn age 65, according to the Institute of Medicine, we go from the worst in the modern world to country by country, year by year, after we turn 65, American life expectancies by age become the best in the modern world, so that our seniors, compared to comparable-aged seniors elsewhere in the world, actually have the longest remaining life expectancies. And the only thing that changes that gets us from having the worst to the best is that we give people access to our healthcare system. So could we do a lot better? Absolutely, on the delivery side. Absolutely. But, oh, my gosh, the biggest problem facing the country right now that makes us not be able to compete with the rest of the world is that we just don't let people in. We just don't let people in. So we need to get that problem fixed. All right, I want to bring Dr. Simon into the conversation. So, um, Cicely, and all, what the data that you've seen and that you've studied, I mean, are there, are there systems that either are Medicare for All and other, other places or some kind of a hybrid system that you think would, would work well in the United States? So definitely... There are many ways to cover the uninsured. When, when people ask me, how has the Affordable Care Act fared? I say, well, in terms of covering the uninsured, it, states politically decided whether they wanted to opt into programs or not. But if we do want to cover the uninsured, we know how to. We make them eligible for free or subs- heavily subsidized health insurance. The big question is, how does... How does the design of that financing structure affect how much care we use and where that care is used? And ultimately, are we making the the whole system cheaper and, and better quality? That's where there's so much uncertainty about what works. So um, practically speaking about where we're at right now, we have a $3 trillion sector in healthcare. We have lots of ways in which the existing structure is going to be very resistant to change because it is a structure we know. And in healthcare, it's often the case that people feel, even if I feel like uh, I'm not, I want to see, I can imagine a better setting when it comes to the details and you say, that means you're going to not have your current employer health insurance. You're not going to have, and, and we haven't even thought of what it is that the that that the current medicare beneficiaries are going to feel about opening up medicare for 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 all i think there's more political you know we we could hear more of and and that's because i i think of when the affordable care act was seen as we're going to try and expand coverage for the under 65 by making some changes within medicare that would bring in more financing there were lots of signs about, you know, have the government stay off of my Medicare, right? So we don't know, you know, what is the way in which current Medicare beneficiaries will feel about what will the system look like when it's when it's extended to all. It's just lots of political realities about how are employers and unions right now going to feel about giving up this structure, the vested health. It's just a lot to imagine that this would be politically easy 
because of what we have seen with the Affordable Care Act and even with that not going as far as, mm-hmm. as Medicare. So I, this is just just saying that because of lots of where it is right now being such a large structure, just anticipating politically that it's not going to be very smooth. It is actually an astonishingly popular concept when it's asked about in a in a relatively neutral way. So, you know, if you ask people, do you want apple pie, people say yes. If you say, would well, you want apple pie if it had poison in it, they say no. Um, the same thing is true with Medicare for all. If you ask people, do you think, you know, we should all have access to, you know, universal health care that's of high quality and that it shouldn't, you know, all the features that we described, they say yes. If you say that we're going to take away something from you, you know, they say no. But that's an unfair way to phrase it because it's it's like taking somebody who's got a, a seat at the back of coach in the airplane that they paid a fortune for and saying, well, you're going to have to give up your expensive coach seat for an inexpensive seat in first class in the front of the plane. Most people would say yes to that. So, And that's really the case that we're talking about. And people don't frankly, often run into how limited their employer-based insurance is and how fragile it is. They change a job and they lose it. They, their employer makes a decision and they lose access to the physician that they want. They, don't, they often don't run into how fragile that insurance is until they get very, very sick. And then they are desperately confronted with the consequences of our fragmented insurance system. And when they understand that that's what they have that's really not working so well for them if they get sick... Um, and they realize that they would no longer have any of those fears, they, it, it reaches overwhelming pop- popularity. But the, the insurance industry is so vested in not letting this change that there's a lot of misinformation out there right now. Isn't it a little bit like the, the whole idea of, of politicians? I mean, everybody hates Congress, but they want to reelect their own congressmen. So a lot of people don't like the system, but if they think that it's going to change for them, Personally, they're not so sure that that's what they want. So, meaning, you know, the the the, the issue uh, it's 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 um, it's it's a complicated and complex issue, and it's very very personalized. All right, um, and there we are in our solution for the affordability issue. We are leaving out of the table and the option the power of a human engagement and human pressure. So any way you can empower the human, the patient themselves, um, and, and convert them to customer, and they end up being engaged in their health, not medical care. So the examples of the unfortunate person who have COPD and, and unable to afford um, medication, that is terrible, and we cannot allow such, such thing. In, in, in this country, and uh, and we have to be thinking about how we can do it. There's Medicaid as a backup potential, you know, for certain folks, obviously, depending on their payment. But that's not health, correct? That's just one piece. And the science for the past 10 years have been looking at the contribution of your healthy life from the medical system right now is less than 10%. Genetic is 20%, but the rest of it is your behavioral health your and your, your social uh, determinant of health. And these two are very, very um, sensitive to the local context. And therefore, somehow we need to be thinking a little bit more uh, innovatively on how can I leverage local contacts, uh, human empowerment, and, 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 and having uh, control over their health uh, to take care of the affordability. And maybe the same method can even put a pressure on healthcare system right now to become more of what we call it accountable health community. They reach out to community-based organization. They expand the definition into preventive health that maybe your L.A. fitness might be much better than your primary care doctor to tell you how to change your behavior about running or not running, especially primary care doctor right now is spending all their money of writing, you know, bureaucracy and, and, and taking care of their electronic health record system. So we need to think outside the box. We need to leverage the innovation of our American citizen, uh, be very sensitive to local contacts. I mean, you know it over here in Indiana. Bloomington is different than Carmel. Bloomington is different than Indianapolis. Bloomington is very different on 38th Street, um, you know, in, in, in Eastern Meridian. And that community over there might have different solution, even on affordability, than uh, another uh, side. So I think um, there's a lot of things we can leverage 
from 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 personalization, from data, from engagement, from market power to take care of both problems without unintended consequences. So I, I know it makes for bad radio. <laughs> so sorry, Bob, but we actually agree quite a bit about this. Makes for great radio. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> we, we, sorry, but we agree on a lot of this. And, and, and but what, so what I see happening around the country is an awful lot of really smart people desperately trying to do the kinds of things you're talking about. There's a whole bunch of really interesting and exciting, innovative things happening in pockets around the country, but there are very few examples around the country of any organized national strategy. And I submit to you that the reason that these are all such fragmented pockets that have been trying for so many years to get beyond their fragmented pocket is because there's very few situations where the entire country can organize into a plan. So if, if, if one area decides that they, want, that they want to make some improvement and people move in and out of that community, the, the long-term benefits take uh, – you have to have short-term gain for fragmented uh, populations. An insurance company, for example, today that wants to do something to improve the health of its membership knows that, uh, that over the course of the next – that every year they have 20 to 25 percent annual turnover. So if they do a campaign to really improve the health of the population, they know that in three years they're going to have half of their members are going to be different people. And they will have been perversely penalized for having improved the health. So uh, of their of their membership. So the best way to kind of ramp up and and force magnify, force multiply the kinds of things you're talking about is to have one consistent economic pool that we're all in. And then the things that you're talking about, if they really do have provable value, which I believe they do, um, then those things become in the long term interest of the national economic strategies. So what you're describing is ways to move forward. I completely I think they're wonderful. But I think we need some way to multiply that and ramp it up so we're in common interest on that. And that's where I see a single payer really having power long term. I mean, I, I think obviously we both want the same thing. Yeah. It's just a matter of process. And uh, I can share with you an example that um, we've been involved with that uh, gave me some hope. All right. Um, can, you, can you hold on to that thought? Yeah, sure. We're going to have to take a short break. No right hold on to hope. And then we're going we're to have this uh, example right when we get back. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. From the Milton Met Studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers south-central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, your host, and we're talking today about health care issues, and um, we're talking about Medicare for All. And also uh, other possibilities as we go forward. We're going to be hearing a lot about this as the, the next presidential campaign um, gets ramped up. So we have three guests with us in the studio. Dr. Kosali Simon is here. She's from the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at uh, Indiana University. She's a professor and also Journal of Health Economics co-editor. Co uh, also, Dr. Malaz Bustani is with us. He's uh, from the Center for Health Innovation and Implementation, uh, the science, science director, and he the center is with the Indiana University Indiana University Medical School. I need to slow down. Dr. Ed Weisbart is here. He's uh, the head head of 
Physicians for a National Health Program, Missouri. And uh, Dr. Weisbart, you're in town, and there's an event, right, that you want to talk about? I am, yeah. I've been brought uh, from St. Louis to, to, to town here to speak for Medicare for All Indiana. It's the name of the group, Medicare for All Indiana. Wow. And I'll be speaking tonight uh, at Blooming Foods East on East 3rd Street from 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock. So 6 o'clock tonight, Blooming Foods East on East, 30, on East 3rd Street about Medicare for All Indiana. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate getting that in. If you want to join us on the program, uh, please do give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can follow us on uh, Twitter at Noon Edition. Dr. Bustani was getting ready to uh, talk about uh, and tell us a story, basically. Yeah. So, um, so you know, in 2015 um, – um, um, uh, uh, President Obama um, uh, released uh, funding to support a lot of clinicians in the country, uh, help them, uh, provide technical assistance for them to, um, um, uh, to be prepared to move from um, uh, volume-based uh, care to value-based care. And Indiana University, we were lucky that we received um, a significant amount of money uh, to actually um, uh, provide such uh, such process. And we create a coalition of around close to 14,000 clinicians in, in five states. Um, and what we have done to help them in that transform and movement is we actually did two strategies that I think we should do over here. We did centralized strategy, local operation. And so what happened, we set up the goal on the long run, but we embedded quality improvement advisor who knew the neighborhood there, who knew the doctor, who knew the system, and who knew the community-based organization, start creating these coalition of, of what they call the medical neighborhood coalition that include a specialist, include a primary care doctor, include the church, include um, uh, you know, community-based organization. And together, they were able to improve diabetes care because they didn't just end with medication. They also improved changing the Human, uh, the patient behavior, they improved flu vaccination for, uh, for everyone, and reduced a lot of wasted cost. And, and for every uh, dollar that we receive from CMS, there's, we haven't confirmed the analysis completely, but there's really good return on investment, not by limiting access, by being a smart and, and, and creating local uh, solution. What we found, local solution in Indianapolis was very, very different from a local solution in North Michigan. And, and actually, sometime when we took that local solution from one place and forced it to another place, it's not just didn't work. It has a lot of unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of the process. We need minimum uh, centralized strategy and a lot of freedom on the local context in anything, including the affordability concept. Mm -hmm. Dr. Weisbart, can you? Yeah, I, I could not agree more with you. And, and that's uh, it's interesting that that program that you're talking about was funded by Medicare. So that's there. There, there are very few, if any, private insurance companies that, w that would want to fund a program like that. Um, I spent years working within the private insurance industry and tried to advocate for programs like that and was invariably told, well, then who's going to fill our hospital beds? Literally, I had a hospital tell us that and cut down a program. Well, then, you know, it, why would we pay to, to increase uh, control of cholesterol when our members are going to leave in two years and it takes, it takes 10 years to prevent a heart attack? So the fragmented system that we have today is, I think, the main barrier to the sort of implementations that you're talking about. And I think that's incredibly important. And that's the whole, whole idea is to have a, a, a federal source that wants to find things that work because it's cheaper to find things that work. Um, and so if there are models like you're describing, <clears throat> and I completely agree that there are, and I think that's a great example of them, then great. You know, so learn from how exactly that was built so that it's customized at the micro level because healthcare is very different from one city to another. So you're, you're describing exactly one of the long-term benefits of putting in place a single-payer Medicare for all system. All right, we're going to go to the phones, and I think uh, our questioner is probably going to be uh, asking this for Dr. Kosley Simon. So, Anne, if you have a you have a question, go ahead. Yeah, my question is the economic impact of a single payer system versus the type of system that we have now with private insurance 
My understanding is that if we had a single-payer system, that a certain percentage would be taken out of a person's gross salary. And would that percentage be less money than what is paid now for a premium for-profit insurance program for a family of four? And that's a great question, which is how are we, how would we think of the amounts of money that we'd have to pay and where would that come from? So when we think about providing single payer or any kind of health care that has minimal to no cost sharing, that you've, you're not going to be having to pay for a service when you use it, and that it's being financed through some other system where we're all paying into it. The, the question is, how, how large is that, that total going to be? And that's where, as I was uh, thinking earlier, that we, we can have forecasts of how much that is, but it's, there's a lot of uncertainty around that because what we're saying is, how much health care would we all use if it was zero cost to us at that point? And, and what we've learned from lots of settings is that we use a lot more care when the, the cost is, is lower. We use care of all kinds. We use the, the kinds that we should and then maybe the types that we would best be geared elsewhere towards. On the financing side, if, if we were to finance Medicare for All just through payroll taxes or just through income taxes, it would be quite a lot. But that's not the only scenario. There's currently lots of payers who are paying in, trying to think of how to harness those payments. So how can we take all the money that employers are currently putting towards employer-provided health insurance, which is in, in lieu of wages? How, what's the political process by which that money could be put towards this new, new form of, of care? Those are the things that we're not sure how that would work, but there are there are different scenarios given out for if we were to have all of those current forms of financing put into one that that the amounts could be much more simplified. Mm-hmm. So, if I could join that discussion, um, I think what you're asking is one of the most important questions. If you know, my to propose something that it has to make sense economically for the nation and personally for individual finance. And when you know that we're currently spending roughly twice as much per person in the United States for health care every year as they do in any other uh, country, we're spending twice as much. Drugs here cost literally twice as much for the same drug as they do elsewhere in the world. When we know we're spending twice as much and, and we're not getting better outcomes, we're actually getting worse results from our system than most other systems provide. When we know that that's going on, it's, it, I think it's 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 – it's very difficult for me to think that we couldn't possibly save money on this. And, in fact, there have been um, 29 economic analyses that have shown that the results of a Medicare for All system would be at least break even and most say we would save money. There was actually a statement about three months ago from 247 economists around the country saying, yes, this makes economic sense, which means that the question you're asking is exactly the right question. It means, of course, there would be a tax uh, funding for it because it's a publicly funded program. But at the end of the day, do you really care if your money is going through taxes or through premiums? Um, And at the end of the day, you would be spending less. At the end of the day, something on the order of 95% of Americans, virtually all Americans, would spend less. And of course that's the case when you're talking about a system that, of course, (laughs) would be less expensive to administer than what we currently do. Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, again, asks a great question, though, because it really does boil down to that individual. I mean, I, I want to know what kind of care I'm going to get, and I want to know how much I'm going to pay for it. Is it going to be better or worse than what I have now? Right? So, Anne, thank you very much. Do you have any follow-up? Uh, no, thank you for the answers. I learned a lot. All right. Thanks. Bye. Uh, if you want to join the program, if you have a question, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can join us on the show. Send us a question at news at indianapublicmedia.org. That dollars and cents question is is an interesting one to me, and I think sometimes people will hear this, hey, Medicare for all, that means everybody's going to get you know, socialized medicine. It's going to be free health care. And you know, last I checked, my Medicare isn't free. 
You know, it comes out. Of, I, I get, you know, I've paid into the system and I get, I'm now paying for health care. I'm not paying as much probably as I used to. So, you know, can, can you sort of address that issue, the fact that, you know, when, when people talk about, well, this is just going to be socialized medicine, you're not going to be, you know, people are going to get something for nothing, that kind of thing. The government's going to just fund all this. Can you address that, Coastal? Sure. It, I think it, it boils down to thinking about how much sway is there right now in our tax system for how much uh, appetite is there for saying that if we're going to deliver something new that's going to be a new a new form of financing how much can we get through increasing income taxes and then the other are it that then becomes this 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 uh, struggle of seeing those who are currently paying for it what will it take to make it flow through a different different mechanism. So for example, if you think employers are saying right now we're putting in oh depending on whether it's family coverage or individual coverage, 90%, 50% of the cost of the premium, what will it take to say we'll not put that money into your wages uh, into your health insurance instead will we pay into the government or will we give it to you in wages, and then will you be okay now paying higher income taxes as a result? Yeah, I don't think anybody would would, would argue that uh, let let employers suddenly stop paying anything for health care, and they'll suddenly start paying all of that back in wages. That's that's an unrealistic expectation. The, the wages are, of course, a negotiated process, um, ideally through a labor process, but they're a negotiated process between the employees and the employer. So to have the employer suddenly off the hook for what they're paying for health care, that, that would be a windfall that, you know, I don't know anybody who's actually advocating for that. And, um, but you could give them a flat amount that they have to pay. You could. I mean, one of the proposals from the University of Massachusetts has employees, employers still paying for health care or contributing to it, but in a predictable amount and actually 8% less than they pay today. So they would get a win. There are, there are complex funding strategies that include modest modest pieces of tax along the along every component of the tax structure rather than just one abrupt change on everything. So of course we can it's of course not free and and you're right that that utilization would increase. People would do more stuff and the estimates are about 12% increase in cost from people doing more things. I argue that that's good, that's not bad. I want people to go get their diabetes treated. I want that woman to have her oxygen. So all those things cost money, and the most consistent number I see estimated is that that would increase the cost of health care by 12%. But on the other hand, getting rid of the incredible duplicity and waste we have in the insurance industry, the incredible waste we have on pricing and all this, the, the savings are more on the order of 19%. So, of course, we would be spending more on actual health care. That's an increase. But the savings would be at least as much, if not more, in most studies. Well, I mean, you know, for me... Uh um, these these kind of questions of uh, there's a lot of other experiment that happened that did not pay off. So if, why why do we stop on medical care? Why don't we create a, a health insurance for your uh, food, health insurance for for your um, uh, job, for your shoes, for your clothes, for everything? Let's let's make bunch of uh, centralized people make decision about what car I want to buy. There is opportunities for us, like a health, is to start leveraging the market power. Health insurance was built for disaster, all right, for disaster. And we might need to focus on disaster backup plan of what insurance is created for and then let the market for other things. Let's give you the power to decide, you know, if you want to have uh, pain while you're exercising or you rather sit, sit and do nothing, correct? I, I can tell you for me personally, you know, I know exercising is really good, but I don't really like it, you know, and I have to nudge myself for these three hours that I have to do every week because I know what will happen. So, but I want, I don't want you to force me to say, no, you can't go on Friday. You can't go on Saturday. I want you to do it 20 minutes every day. So I think we can create an insurance for disaster, but everything else, let's leverage the market. Let's leverage the empowerment. To, to help me choose which uh, thing I want to do. But if I got lucky uh, 
and and was able to have no disease when I was young, you know, uh, and do it. But if I got unlucky and by genetic or or anything else social, then I will have that safety net for disaster and give me the help. But don't take choice for me and let some. Uh, you know, bureaucrat make these kind of decision away from my my system. We have just about we have a little bit less than ten minutes to go. So if you do have a question, we can we still have time to take it. Eight one two eight five five zero eight one 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 eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. Also send us your questions. News at Indiana Pub, Indiana Public Media dot org. So we as a country have decided kind of what you said. We've decided that if you're desperate and, and your kidneys stop working and you're going to die if you don't get dialysis. We decided decades ago that, that one of the ways to get into Medicare isn't just aging in. If your kidneys stop working and you go on to dialysis, you have Medicare, and the country pays for that through, through Medicare at the tune of roughly $80,000 a year. I don't know about you, but I would want to make sure that anybody who's at risk for going on to dialysis can get their gall darn hypertension meds, can get their insulin, can get the can get the pennies that they need to get to to prevent. We're we're being we're we're being silly by not making it available to treat your hypertension and your diabetes, and just throwing our hands up in the air and saying, you know. Okay, you know, we, we're going to trust you to make your informed decision, although we're going to put financial barriers in the way of your being able to do that. Well, if we're not willing to walk away, if we're not willing to say, well, your diabetes is because you decided not to take your insulin, even though you couldn't afford it. If we're, if we're going to absorb the cost of your dialysis, I think we just, it's, it's ridiculous to not say, let's make your blood pressure treatment affordable. Um, it's, it's in our own interest with to do it, that. With the affordability is not the issue. The issue, how can you reach affordability? You can reach affordability like the same way how everything else dropped down with there's a market demand, supply uh, supply and demand issue. You can force uh, certain hospitals. For me, like if I don't take care of you for dementia, then you will choose and go somebody else, and then you will force me to create a value. That's a diff- affordability solution has to be done. But the question, how can you do it? What's the right strategy? I think there's been a lot of evidence of leverage the market is not the best, but it's been working well for certain things, especially when there's no monopoly around it. And there, there are some lessons in Medicare we can point to of where, especially when related to prescription drugs, it was only in 2006 that Medicare added prescription drugs. By that time, the private market had already added prescription drugs to insurance for a long time. And so we have to be aware of the way that Getting change in, in the government structure in, within Medicare, it's, it, it is not that once it's built, everything will just happen as the market wants, as, as people want. You have to get Congress to agree, and it's just a lot of uncertainty that inter, in, introduces. My last call for calls got us a couple. So we're going to go first to uh, Wayne, who has a question about efficiencies. Wayne? Yes. Um, not enough time to go over everything, but... Okay. One of the, um, I I come from a family of all doctors, uh, primary care physicians, um, and I, two of the things that they go over and over when they discuss the problems with the healthcare system is the the insurance issue, how the insurance controls the the care of the patient, is how they would phrase it, is. <clears throat> The doctors are doing what they're what they're allowed to do because of the billing situation, and then and then the lack of transparency and where the costs are going in in medicine. And then the other thing they 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 talk about with um, you know Medicare for all is um, how many government agencies do you work with that seem to be very efficient? It doesn't seem like a government agency has any incentive to be efficient. So if you hand that over to a government agency, for one thing, <clears throat> the, the last person talking talked about how slow things get done and, and, and how efficiently they can get done if you did it under a single-payer system that the government controlled. I think if you had a single-payer or a, you know, a, a limited number of payer system that had some kind of privatized incentive to be more efficient that 
that would be doable. Okay, we have uh, about 30 seconds for an answer. Overhead for the private insurance industry is 18% roughly. Overhead at Medicare is 2.2%. So, and, and the private insurance industry has generated more overhead than that among doctors and hospitals. So the current system is way more expensive than Medicare. The government, if, if, if the government decides it is going to get done, Medicare can do things much faster. But the question is, how long is it going to take for government to decide on something? Well, I think Medicare already is not doing it faster. It's not doing it personalized. And there's a lot of paperwork that I have to go through to make sure some of our evidence-based solution make it together. So a, a centralized solution to put a market, it's a still insurance. It's going to take away the, the power from the patient and from the clinician to somebody else. Okay, we have one, one more. I think we can get one more call in. Let's go to Sarah next. Sarah? A quick comment from my own position is that he wishes that we had Medicare for all. Uh, my own comment is that I have Medicare uh, as, a, as a retiree. I also have a, a supplemental plan, which gives me choices that I might not have under Medicare. Uh, so that the private insurance company doesn't disappear from Medicare. It's just that the basic, absolute basic needs are covered at, at a very reasonable cost. The other thing is that Medicare uh, drug plans are all uh, out. Medicare is involved in giving you choices about drug plans, but but you choose those mm-hmm. individually. They're not they're not mandated from above. I think that's a great point about how the private sector involvement is still there in Medicare. Twenty two million of Medicare beneficiaries are in Medicare Advantage plans, and all of prescription drug coverage Part D is in private insurance. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not that private insurance has no role in current-day Medicare. But that, that is what we're talking about, is, is taking the things that we've currently decided people buy, the people decided they want in a supplement or from Advantage plans, and get rid of the plan problem. You make that available to everybody. Embed in Medicare the things that you have to today buy a supplement for. Everybody needs those advantages. Your uh, presentation tonight? Yeah, tonight, 6 o'clock, Medicare for All Indiana at Blooming Foods East on East 3rd Street. No tickets, no reservations. Just show up. Blooming Foods East, East 3rd Street, 6 o'clock tonight, okay. Medicare for Dr. All Indiana. Stani, last 10 seconds. You want, want to add anything? You know, it's, it's choice, choice, choice. Make sure that choice is done to the patient level on a local place, and let's leverage the market power. All right. Thank you all for being here, Dr. Kosley Simon, Dr. Ed Weisbart, and Dr. Malaz Bustani. Uh, for uh, my engineer, Mike Pashkash, our producer, Benton Boutier, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And the Bloomington Health Foundation, this September hosting the 20th running of Hoosiers Outrun Cancer, a 5K run-slash-walk supporting those in the community facing a cancer diagnosis. Registration and more at HoosiersOutrunCancer.org.